Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. President of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Kathleen Ross, who joined us not so long ago to talk about the difficulties our healthcare system finds itself in and doctors find themselves in. I have to tell you this before we get into our next discussion. I have to share this with you. I was just on X or Twitter, and I, I, I don't know how I got to where I was, but I was looking at the a photograph of this guy sitting at a table, a restaurant table, with this massive lobster in front of him. He's got his shades on and he's chowing down on, on this massive lobster. And I thought, what is the story here? So I read this. Touched down in Malaysia. I'm looking forward to a productive week of meetings with officials, industry leaders, and partners from Canada and the Indo-Pacific to promote our world-class products. Like the lobster I enjoyed for lunch, in Kuala Lumpur. So this is from Lawrence McCauley, federal minister. I think it's agriculture. I'm not 100% sure. And I thought, you're in so much trouble with Canadians who are having so much difficulty paying for their, paying their bills, paying mortgages, paying rents, feeding themselves and feeding their families. It's not the greatest look to be in a fancy restaurant chowing down on a massive lobster, even if you say it's Canadian. It's, it's, just, it's just not smart, Mr. Minister. Uh, I think I'll post that. I think I'll put that on my uh, X feed at the Roy Green Show. Or you can find it at... Uh, L. Macaulay, M-A-C-A-U-L-A-Y, at L underscore M-A-C-A-U-L-A-Y. It's just not wise. It's, I don't care if it's Canadian or not. It wasn't free. It's the $18 glass of orange juice all over again. Okay, uh, National Pharmacare. We're going to talk about that this hour. Because the federal liberals and the New Democrats are attempting to negotiate a national pharmacare program in order to keep their political alliance alive and prevent a snap election. And I got to thinking, you know, we've been waiting for, we've been talking about, we've been discussing, uh, arguing for, arguing against a national pharmacare program for a long time. So is the liberal NDP coalition, because that's what they are. It's a coalition government. Only Mr. Singh lets Mr. Trudeau get away with everything. But is it the sound basis for securing a pharmaceutical 
PharmaCare program for Canadians, for securing pharmaceuticals for Canadians, dealing with the need for medications, including significant, even life-threatening illness. Would a national pharmacare program be funded sufficiently that the newest and most effective drugs for heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and other serious illnesses become and or remain unavailable? Or would a pharmacare bureaucracy be underfunded and overregulated to the point pharmaceutical companies would not make the most recent and effective and expensive drugs available to Canada and Canadians? It costs money. And if you don't put enough money into the system, the pharmaceutical companies that spend massive amounts of money developing these cutting-edge medications are not going to give it to you. And so the citizens face the potential of having to be satisfied with medications that are years old. Something nobody talks about. It's all, oh yeah, we need a national pharmacare program. Look at it properly. Um, we're actually going to talk to two doctors this hour, and we'll begin with Dr. Sean Watley, past president of the Ontario Medical Association and author of When Politics Comes Before Patients. Sean, did you have lobster for lunch? I did not, sir. Oh, that's too bad. I didn't even have lunch. <laughs> It's good to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Could you explain to us, please, what, what do we have in place now? How does the uh, pharmacare or pharma system work in this country at present time? Well, according to a survey in 2015, 70 to 80% of Canadians already have some form of uh, drug coverage, whether it's uh, public or private. And actually 79% of those people are satisfied with the coverage they have. Only 7% are dissatisfied. So National Pharmacare is really a gigantic, uber expensive. And we're talking, they estimate $15 billion, but even the parliamentary budget office has said it's going to be more like 30 billion, 28.5 billion, some estimates as high as $52 billion a year. So a, a big boondoggle to fix a problem for a shrinking number of Canadians that could be fixed more effectively in a different way. Yeah. And I want to be clear that I asked Dr. Watley to join me on the air on this issue of pharmacare. It was not Dr. Watley approaching me for an interview. I asked him and you can, uh, you can go to his website seanwatley.com, that's S-H-A-W-N-W-H-A-T-L-E-Y.com. So we're, we're in reasonably good shape as far as medication is concerned. Now, New Zealand has uh, a national pharmacare program, and my understanding is that they, uh, they lag behind when it comes to the most cutting edge and new drugs that can actually help somebody who's in a very serious health condition. They have to use the older generations. That's my understanding. Could we find ourselves in that sort of position or am I overstating things when I say we run the risk of underfunding what the pharmaceutical companies require in order to keep us on the cutting edge? 
No, absolutely. And and I apologize if I gave you the impression that we're in good shape in Canada. There's always opportunity to improve, especially when you start looking at drugs for rare uh, disorders. And so I could unpack um, why uh, pharmaceutical companies are actually avoiding Canada, not even bringing their drugs to market. And so there's a huge discussion there. So lots of opportunities to improve, but pharmacare wouldn't fix that. And as a case in point, actually, so you bring up New Zealand and New Zealand has very severe price restrictions. And actually they pride themselves on that. They make a, a virtue out of blocking these high price drugs. But when you look at, again, when you're talking about the highest price drugs, it's usually drugs for rare disorders, life-threatening problems. And, and one recent study um, found that of the 460 publicly funded medications over the last 10 years available in the OECD, so in the, in the European countries, only 7% of them were available in New Zealand. So places like Hungary, Poland, Estonia, Turkey are getting these medications covered. People have them publicly funded, but not in New Zealand. And that's because New Zealand is so rigid about pushing pharmaceutical companies away and saying, listen, we're not paying a dollar over this asking price. And if you won't bring your price down, fine. Our population won't have access. 7%. Mm-hmm. Wow. I know I, I hate to see anything that has to do with the health of Canadians being the focus of the survival of a political party's alliance. Yes. And, and so that you're getting to the issue of why are we even having this discussion? So this is all about the NDP liberal confidence and supply deal, right? That's what they're calling it, the confidence and supply deal. And the way you'll hear it floated is that all these patients have barriers to getting medications because they can't pay for them. We call that cost-related non-adherence. And that is a real thing. So some people don't get their medications because they don't even want to pay the copay. Okay, so that is a real issue. But to then leverage that and say, well, that's the cause of all medication non-adherence is just simply not the case. You've probably taken you know, blood pressure pills or antibiotics, and how many times do you miss a pill? So we forget, or we're, we're on too many medications already, or we don't understand why we're taking a medication for so long. And it's a long list of reasons for why people don't take their medications. And simply marketing this as as the NDP solution to great health for everyone, it, it is not fair. So the economic argument is not there. The non-adherence issue is not there uh, in the way they're suggesting they're going to solve it. And so I can't help but wonder whether this isn't part of their ideological fo focus, which has been the case since the start. National Pharmacare has always been a key pillar for social medicine or state medicine. And this is a movement that's been around the world for the last hundred years. Yeah, it makes me look at your book title, not saying your book is about this, but your title, title of your book is When Politics Comes Before Patients. Exactly. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's, it's not about the patients. It's about the survival of the alliance and maybe winning an election that they have very little chance of winning. Um, who, who would run this kind of pharmacare program and make decisions on what will and won't be covered, that's crucial. And speaking personally, I'd be alarmed if the same bureaucrats and bureaucracies which manage healthcare now were to manage pharmacare. Yeah. So that's a huge question. And they started asking that question actually in 2019. 
And they're suggesting that we're going to replace everything we have now with a new one-size-fits-all Canadian drug agency. And in fact, they struck a Canadian drug agency transition office, office and funded it with $35 million in 2019. And this office, the CD, uh, CDATO, has had over 300 meetings with provinces and territories and CAIHI and Canada Health Infoway, so a long list of people, to try to figure out how they would even build pharmacare. Basically, what they'd have to do is take away or mothball all of the provincial and territorial drug plans, um, all of their data systems, all of their purchasing agreements and try to come up with one big brand new system. And we could unpack the current five-step process that you have now, but it it is it is gruesome that the message in Canada is try not to bring expensive drugs to market onto the public formulary because they cost money and we don't want to spend for them. Uh, how does it work now? You said five, is it, is it five, five, step. five steps? Yeah. What so are just they? Very, very, very briefly, number one, you have to get Health Canada regulatory approval. Other countries have incentives to get new drugs into that pipeline. So they'll fast track a new or an innovative medication. Canada has no incentive. Second step, health technology assessment. And what that is, is it's farmed out to Cadith or the Canadian Institute for Drug Technologies and Health. And they try to figure out how much money is this going to cost per life that we give you. So they call it an incremental cost estimate ratio. Very narrow, very simplistic, and the whole thing is not very transparent for patients. Third step is a pan-Canadian pharmaceutical alliance where they get a price negotiation. They bring everybody, all the provinces and territories together, and they negotiate with each pharmaceutical company on the particular drug. Very, very slow. It can take years. Fourth step is then each individual province drug plan will decide whether or not to list that medication if it had a positive health technology as, uh, um, assessment on their provincial formulary. So provincial formularies usually have about 5,000 medications listed. In, in Ontario, there's an extra 1,000 that you can get with special access. The average retail plan has 12 to 14,000 medications. Then the final step in all this is something called the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board, or the PMPRB. And what they initially were created for was to protect patients against um, uh, abuse from uh, uh, monopolistic behavior and price gouging after the drugs were actually on the market. But in the last few years, they've transitioned to protect governments from having to actually pay for these new drugs. I could unpack more in each of those five steps, but it's a real rat's nest. So I received an email uh, last night from, from a listener who has great interest in the pharmacare issue. And she lives with uh, serious health issues, very serious health issues. And her concern is that uh, if this national pharmacare program actually becomes law and uh, the bureaucracies take over and run it, that the medications that she's on, which are expensive, but keep her alive, may suddenly find themselves in um, disfavor with the bureaucracy because they cost so much, may suddenly find themselves off the availability list, and she would have to try to make do, and we touched on this earlier, but try to make do on medications that she knows already 
would not help her, or would it would they might help her, but they wouldn't save her life. They wouldn't necessarily keep her alive as her current medications are doing. I, I won't joke about this either because my listeners know what I'm living with, and uh, and so do you, Doctor Watley. And uh, I mean, I have some level of concern that the bureaucracies in this country might turn around and say, "Well, we can't uh, we can't really afford to have this drug and this drug and this drug and this drug." Not that I'm on that many. But uh, they might say to about the one that I'm on, can't afford that anymore. Give them what they what we used five years ago. Yeah, yeah, and so that's what nobody knows right now. They talk about essential drugs, but really, are they just saying the older, cheaper ones, or are they saying a bare bones list that some provinces have, or more like a retail plan? So, to use a concrete example, look at cystic fibrosis patients. Over four thousand Canadians with cystic fibrosis. Um, the current drug that most people have been on is is something called Caladeco. Um, but there's a new one out that costs $300,000 a year called Trikafta. Wow. And the only way to get on that new drug is if you go through an, uh, an exceptional um, access program application. And the criteria for that is that you have to have untreated lung function that's less than 90%. So, so patients have to either take the risk of getting much worse by getting off of the older medication that they are on now, and hopefully they qualify for this new medication, or they just stay on the old one that they know is not as good because they won't be able to make, meet these you know, nitpicky criteria for the new medication that's out there. And I can give you other examples, some of the new medications are multiple millions of dollars when you get into the gene therapy treatments for hemophilia. So $2.8 million for a one-time treatment that fixes you for the rest of your life is a lot less than $20 million for a lifetime of transfusions. But we're talking about big, big numbers. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, governments are really hesitant to pay those. Yeah. Um. The question is always about whether or not there's going to be discrimination against the poor, whether a national pharma care program might actually level the playing field so the poor in our society can access exactly what the not-so-poor are accessing. Yeah, so great question about the poor. We also worry about the elderly. And so currently that those patient demographics aren't the ones that we're worried about. They already have coverage. Um, now you could make an argument that sometimes there are co-pays that people have to pay. For example, seniors in Ontario have to pay a small co-pay. And for some people, that can be a problem as well. So there are some gaps to fill there. The biggest gap that we're finding, and for most people who don't have any coverage at all, are in Ontario and in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's where we see the largest okay. demographic. And what these people are is they're falling in between the poor and the seniors. Okay, so Dr. they're the working poor families. And Dr. So there's an opportunity to help them, but uh, I don't think a national pharmacare plan is the way to do it. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.